iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome to The Ruck. Today is Beer Garden Monday and you're invited to listen to this podcast sitting outside a pub freezing to death, attempting to warm yourself over the ashes of English clubs in the Heineken Cup. As we record this podcast, there is snow falling outside my palatial London home. Actually, there is major good news though. The shops are open and Jonesy can finally get a haircut. Even better as we've recruited to the podcast today one of the all-time specialists in French rugby. Everything good in rugby at the moment is French. They could even lay on two of the most dismal quarterfinals of all time yesterday and still get three teams in the semi-finals. To explain all, we have the brilliant Martin Gilligan, TV commentator and specialist on the top 14. Martin, great to have you back again. You're on mute. The great commentator. Martin, you're on mute. Great to have the mute Martin back on. <laughs> Uh, greetings. It's great to be here. <laughs> hey, well, uh, how long have you been a commentator? No, no, no Stephen, Stephen, you must learn in this business of commentating. Know how to use silence. <laughs> you mean when you've accidentally muted yourself? All those periods of <laughs> silence in Martin's French top 14 game to when he's got his mute button on. Great <laughs> Some style. of your best work, Martin. You might just have then heard the, uh, the voice of the great Chris Jones. Uh, who's uh, was in Bedford for us yesterday. No, you weren't. You oh, were well, I could have gone to Bedford, but I probably made a better choice in going to Saracens where the game was. But I could have gone to Bedford and got a sort of a, a, a pulse of how they felt of being mullered by the entire England contingent minus uh, Farrell. Yeah, OK. Well, well done for going to Saracens, not Bedford. That, that's, uh, that shows a great professional ability there. I didn't introduce myself, though. I'm, I'm Owen Slott. Maybe you recognise this voice after 27 years of doing this bloody podcast. Jonesy, you're, you're here as well to make us all behave, I suggest. And also, I had a haircut last week with my, through my daughter, so don't say I'm going to have my haircut, long-awaited haircut, because the, the fans out there can't see me, but I have got very short hair. The other thing is, where's the old baldy bloke? That baldy bloke, he's not here. He spent the whole day doing TV yesterday. Does that mean we can say what we want this week? <laughs> go on, let it go then. Oh, well, we, we, we can talk about wasps, we can talk about Saracens, all the things Lawrence, Lawrence comes under. <laughs> oh, all right, we, I missed his intro, be fair. <laughs> well, hopefully he'll be back next week um, and, and we can get things back to normal. All right, OK. Let, let's talk about, um, about Europe first. And just the fact there's no English clubs in the, in the semi-finals, is, is, that a, 
it, it, should that be a concern to English rugby? Is it is it a, a state of the nation thing, or in, in my opinion, it's just it's just slightly the thing things didn't work out this year. No, that's absolutely right. And look, everything's different in uh, in, in the time of COVID. Things didn't work out. I mean. Because of the lack of a, a proper uh, pool section, things didn't come out, you know, necess- not necessarily the top teams came through. And uh, some teams met stronger teams in the quarterfinals than they might have expected. No, no, it's not. I mean, um, Exeter would just had one of those games, and it is one of those games where they weren't there. They weren't there. They weren't up to it. Uh, they tried They tried their best, but things just didn't happen for them. It, it's no... Um, I think we always say well, whoever wins the Euro- Heineken European Cup, if it's an uh, English team, we always say all oh, the Ireland teams have had it and, and vice versa. It, it, it's not it's not a long term problem, I don't think. It was a bizarre weekend, but uh, the, the reports of the death of English club rugby would, be, would have been exaggerated. Yeah. So on on the other side of that, Martin, you, you've been watching the development of the top fourteen. There, there is an argument for embracing the fact they got three sides in the in the semi-finals and and, and saying, well, that's uh, the product of, of long-term development and and this this is the the great surge of of the French clubs. I think there's probably more in that than saying that uh, it's the death of the English clubs. Well, I think that a pertinent point here is if we go back a year. The French were the first to knock their domestic season on the head and say, right, what we're going to do is write it off. We're going to come back in August, September. They had a long off-season, perhaps too long, you could argue, but certainly time to prepare. And just chatting with a lot of players, and I'm not talking here about the, you know, the England players, the international players, who um, the Saracens players have been getting lots of time off throughout this season. But the guys who are at the work base week in, week out, just had nine straight weeks of Gallagher Premiership rugby. I think that the English teams are suffering quite a bit from the fact that we came back, we finished the end of season. Many of these players have been playing, if not week after week after week, but they've had an incredibly long season. And we, we're almost reversing roles. I mean, we used to say sometimes the, the French sides don't all, with the exceptions of the likes of Claremont and Toulouse, chuck everything at Europe because simply their season is too long. In this respect, the the roles are reversed. We've now got French players who are far fresher than they have been in past seasons and the English who are not. And I think, you know, the other key point when we analyse the the form of the English sides, we haven't got Saracens there at the moment. And if we go back over the last few seasons, certainly in the, uh, the Premier competition, the Heineken Champions Cup, it has been extra and it's been Saracens. And I know we've seen the emergence of Bristol, but the reality is we've got a French season uh, which has allowed players to be much fresher, an English season which has been a bit more like a French season in the past. And we've had, in terms of you know, proven animals at European level, half the number competing from England. Chris, I, I, look, I look at the, the English demise in, in inverted commas, if you like, and, and I'm, I'm thinking, in the past, as, as Martin said, we the Premiership kind of relied on Saracens to, to lead the way, and, and, and now sort of Exeter have sort of reached that level too. So, you, so when Saracens are, are back, you would say, oh well, there's probably two clubs up at that level who could contend. I don't know what you think, but I would say that probably Bristol are there or will be there pretty soon. They're, they're, they're certainly on the way, and, and maybe arguably Sale as well. So. I mean, do you think that, that, that maybe this time in a, a year, well, Saracens won't be playing in a year, but, but do you think we got that, that England do have sort of uh, four teams or, or more that would be fit for purpose? 
They're certainly coming on slowly, but what's interesting is, you know, is, is Exeter as, as champions came up against a Leinster side who, with their vast European experience, knew how to win. When they were in trouble, they didn't panic and they got themselves into a position to win. And, you know, Sale, you know, were pretty close, you know, heading towards half time against La Rochelle, but they didn't have that ability then to step it up that next level. And I think it's a learning curve for teams like Sale. And, you know, under Alex Anderson, they are going to learn very quickly. He'll bring a lot of that uh, Saracens and to them. But they're not ready yet, I don't think, in terms of experience. But, but teams you know, like Leinster, you, you just look at the way that there's, there's no, there are changes in their team, but they don't panic because they know, they understand what it takes to win in Europe. And uh, uh, I think that's why we're not seeing you know, teams coming through at the moment from, from England because they don't have that experience without Saracens being there. I mean, Saracens' European experience has been used in the championship to what effect we could ask. But... Uh, no, I don't. I, I, I put big thumbs up to those teams that have been le- learning to win in Europe, and some of the England teams are just starting. I remember when Martin Johnson was team manager of England, he always said that it was vitally important that England had four really great top grade club clubs at the top of the table, very mm. important for the England team, and that they were competitive in Europe, etc. And the teams you brought up, I think, have got. A, a decent chance. I think Bristol next year, Bristol target one thing at a time. I think next year they'll target Europe. Uh, Pat Lamb will, will recruit to that aim. So I think, and, and then sale have, have got massive potential. So next year we could just be at a stage where there are four uh, genuine contenders. And I mean, genuine contenders, not just someone making up the bottom four, uh, the top four. So I think, I think you make a good point. And I, I think there's a chance next year. There are the two English clubs in, in the in the Challenge Cup, you know, semis, and Leicester are you know, a great European name. They're starting to put together a horrible pack again, and Bath, you know, with what they've got, they you know they could compete with it with anybody on on the day. And you know, Montpellier haven't had a fantastic season, as Martin knows, but they've put a, together five wins in a row. So the Challenge Cup matches are well worth watching as well because you've also got Ulster in there, who were just you know they were just Ulster at Northampton, weren't they? They just they they weren't gonna lose that match and uh, there's, there's, some, there's some good rugby going around it does include a couple of English clubs and, and when you say good rugby that, that's not what you'd have said Martin of the um, of the two all French affairs in, in, in the quarterfinals yesterday so 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 we, we, we've spent so so long drooling about you know French the French are back and they've actually remembered how to play play French rugby again so how do you explain what happened yesterday I, I explain it by turning the clock back maybe five to ten years and I watched Playoff match, the barrage, as they call them in France, so sort of half quarterfinals and then the semi finals. Right, can you just say that again in your French accent? Because we've barrage. Oh, just purring. I'm bringing something to you this morning. Um, we used to watch utter rubbish week after week with these playoff matches. And it is just simply one of those classic occasions where the occasion beats everyone. And I think that was the, the case yesterday. It was almost like turning the clock back to. Uh, to a top 14 semi-final weekend from five or 10 years ago when you would get one decent match every two or three seasons. And I think it's as simple as that, really. I mean, I, we saw the best of France, didn't we, in the, the second 40 at the uh, Marcel de Flandre, yeah. where, um, I, I mean, for, for half an hour in the first half, La Rochelle was sort of shadow boxing almost with, with Sale. I think there was a, a slightly odd decision made between referee and TMO, maybe it was 10 minutes or so, 
uh, before half time when Dylan Lade scored that try and that sparked a bit of life on both sides. But then in the second half, it was just all one-way traffic. And I think we saw what we tend to associate with French rugby. But I do feel that what we saw on Sunday was entirely reflective of what we often see from French sides in, in knockout matches in the top 14. Racing, uh, they have to win something big because of the way they're set up and their eminence and the money they spend. Claremont uh, and Racing had a brilliant chance. Claremont had a chance to, to, to really go all the way. Now, the week before, they were absolutely devastating against Wasp. They played so rapidly with so much skill and so much power. And Racing, similarly, against, against uh, Edinburgh. And I, I totally get what you say about the bara- barrage. Yeah. <laughs> Barrage. Oh, barrage. Come on, get, get, get it right, Jonesy. I mean, if I was a fan, I'd give him a barrage of abuse because <laughs> when, it, when it comes down to it, I mean, whatever you're out there for, when you suddenly start trailing with 10 minutes to go, surely you've got to play. And, and I cannot believe how supine Claremont and, and, and Racing really were. And even, you know, when are you going to go out of the competition? I totally get what you're saying, Mark, but. Um, Suddenly, someone had to play, and then and, and and they didn't. And I just thought, blimey, you know, um, yesterday I was going to sit down and really enjoy those two two games. At the end, I was so uh, sort of bored. I had the awful experience of watching Spurs. So um, it was a it was a bizarre mm. afternoon for me. Yeah, well, I disappeared off to the golf course before the end of the afternoon, which I thought was the, the better option. But but I agree. I mean, it's absolutely frustrating when you see what happened in that cracking match in in Coventry you know, just uh, a couple of weeks ago to then have to face up to this. But, hey, c'est la vie. Martin, can I ask you about the fact that both the French matches were refereed by English referees, and in the, the border racing game, there was 30 penalties by Matthew Carley and a couple of yellow cards. Do you think it's a case maybe of them being refereed an English way and they were just technically a, a bit, well, some of them were ridiculous penalties, uh, you know, blocking the, the guy trying to, catch the ball from the kickoff and the breakdown was all kinds of sort of technical problems. Is that, is that a factor, Martin, do you think? No, I think it is. And I think that also, again, if we flip it around, we've seen a lot of frustration, haven't we, with, with French referees refereeing side from our side of La Manche. Oh, lovely. <laughs> you need me to translate for you there, Chris. So, so yeah, yeah, I've lost it a bit. Are we, are we, are we on French television now? <laughs> you can get simultaneous translation if you're downloading this podcast. Brilliant, brilliant. Honestly, he's added a fair play to Gillers. He's added a touch of class. Hey, I'm, I'm bringing some Afrikaans. We've got to talk about the Lions tour. Oh, blimey. Yeah. He's, he's, he's multilingual now. Martin, just um, Claremont. They appear to be a team that have um, crested the wave and might might be crashing down the other side with, without actually ever having remembered to win the uh, Heineken Cup. You know, they've been built around Parra and Lopez and, and a number of uh, of old stages, Fritz Lee, and, and they're not going to carry on going. Are, are, are they refreshing? Have they got some... Have they got a new generation who will take over or um, or, or is, that, is that it for a few years? I think... There is an element of that. And I mean, there's a there's a danger reading too much into individual circumstances. But let's look, Frank Azema, after a decade away at the club, is leaving. Now, my first instinct was, is he going because he's got this big offer from Montpellier and we know how much money that Moed Altra has got. But I was speaking to someone at the weekend who knows the Claremont Club inside out. And I get the impression that not all is as well as it might be. Frank Azema is, is moving on, not necessarily because there's a bigger pay, paycheck, 
not necessarily because he needs another challenge, but because maybe things are not quite as he would like them to be at Clermont. So, I mean, maybe there's a suggestion there that, again, I mean, they were our, our sort of our guilty pleasure, weren't they, for 10 years, our favourite second team. Mm. Maybe, I don't know, we have to review that and think, well, maybe not all is quite as well there in, uh, in volcano country as we'd like to think it, or as it was maybe five to 10 years ago. If they're, if they're not going to be our favourite second team, Jonesy, then surely we've all got to pile in for La Rochelle and a few weekends on the, uh, on the Atlantic coast. Definitely. I think it's great that there's someone there from outside the normal geographical location. And good luck to them. Do you know that there were um, U-boat pens there in the war, Sotty? Well, I, I've heard that, but I wasn't there myself. Were you, were you in that campaign? I was there. I was in the Secret Service at the time. <laughs> and, and you know the history of Marcel de Flandre. It's good that Jonesy talks about that. Because if we talk about true fortresses in European rugby, Marcel de Flandre was the club president during the war. Now, he was doing that job by day and by night he was sitting there in the harbour watching the U-boats come in and out. I mean, he literally died for the city because he was, um, he was a key figure in the French resistance and was, was shot by the Nazis. Blimey. God. You didn't know that, did you? I'm writing all this down, you know. I'm thinking of doing a book. <laughs> Well, he's more interesting than Lawrence Martin, isn't he? That's a great story. And he did it in English as well, which um, which helps for some of our listeners. Yeah. Sotty, Sotty, can you tell Lawrence he's not coming back? Give him a ring. <laughs> he's got to come up with a story to match that every week from exactly. now on. Exactly. That's a cracker. Martin, is it is it right to have a huge love-in with Ronan O'Gara and Jono at La Rochelle? I mean, I, I've enjoyed what they've been doing. I thought what they did in the second half against Sale was, was, was pretty impressive in the way that they suddenly broadened their game out and, and were really effective in, in attack, uh, having done the, the hard bit up front with those gigantic uh, forwards. Yes, I think it is, Chris. And I think that they are our Claremont, if you like. I mean, the cruel irony, of course, is that the, the clever money is on John O'Gibbs being poached by Claremont to return there as replacement for Branca Zena. So, I mean, that's, I mean, <laughs> I mean, that's good old. I mean, it's like, it's like EastEnders sometimes, isn't it, uh, French rugby? <laughs> But that's the uh, that's the thing that's supposed to be happening, which is a bit of a shame. But you're right. I mean, it's I mean, it's a cracking lineup, isn't it, for this semi-final? I mean, you couldn't make it up if Ronan Agar up against Leinster. If you were if you had the clever money, Jonesy, when would you have uh, Ronan O'Gara returning to Irish rugby? Because that seems to be a narrative that, that's that's forewritten, isn't it? It it does. I have to say that I really admire the bloke for the way he's done it. He's gone out for looked around all the cultures and played in different cultures and coached in different divisions around the world. I, I really, really admire that. These days, uh, we have this term super coach, and that means you've got a, a gun, as did Graham Henry, for instance, um, gone to other places to coach, rather than just coming up the same boring system. Sorry, not, not knocking Irish coaches, but they're coming up the same way where everyone thinks the same. Now, you've got Ronald O'Gara, who's already thinking out of the box. I mean, he's bound to, to come in uh, unless someone really wants a, a very, very fine coach and uh, they give him a lot of money not to go to Ireland. I just think he's done brilliantly. Uh, looking forward to him coming back. I mean, I'm sure he will go to Ireland and take over from uh, a- um, Andrew Farrell. As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Talk, talk about your trip to the, that you didn't make to Bedford yesterday, the, the, the one the one to North London. You, so you saw Saracens uh, beat Bedford by uh, forty odd points. Half century, mate. And uh, just to say that uh, the ground there is being rebuilt. Uh, it's a very strange vista, but uh, just like the team, you know, by next year uh, it will be a, a really impressive ground. And, uh, and they will have uh, their uh, status back, you would expect. Otherwise, that ground ain't going to be used for anything because if they don't get up, we know what that means for their players and for the finances of the club. But uh, Nigel Ray was there yesterday surveying uh, his, his empire and you know, he's still in there helping the club financially. And as long as he is doing that, they will have the ability to put out the sort of team that we saw taking on Bedford, who... Uh, yeah, you would have almost expected them to have their um, their, their sort of their autograph books uh, ready at the end of the game to go around the Saracens players because all the big names are there minus uh, Owen Farrell, whose calf injury is probably going to clear up by the time they play unbeaten Doncaster yeah. away uh, on on Saturday. So uh, yeah, it's interesting to see uh, <laughs> see a front row of Macavonapola, Jamie George, and Vincent Koch up against Bedford. And boy, did they muller the scrum. And uh, yeah, that's just shows you, you know, the sort of, uh, Martin's talked before about, you know, what players are not in Europe at the moment. There were some big players on uh, on show against Bedford yesterday. This allows us to to, to, to utter sentences that you wouldn't normally expect to, to, to appear on uh, uh, anywhere, let alone, let alone a highly rated podcast like this. But, but Saracens have two big games coming up uh, now against Doncaster and Ealing Trailfinders. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the two unbeaten teams, and you know, Mark McCaw was was very clear yesterday that his England players and and obviously Scotland with Sean Maitland playing well on the wing will be on duty uh, firstly at Doncaster and then against the the massive game against Ealing Trailfinders, who as we all remember beat them twice in pre season warm up matches, and uh, you know, Mark keeps on going on about the fact that the Ealing Trailfinders are a settled squad and they've you know, been around a long time and know how to win in 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 the in a championship, but he's got. British Lions, British Irish Lions players all over his team, and if he, you know, if he can't you know, beat Doncaster and Trailfinders, yeah, you certainly don't deserve to be back in the Premiership. 
so the chance of an upset don't don't really exist then, Jonesy. What do you think? Well, I think the trail finds are a lot better than people think. I really do. I think they're a terrific club and they've done exceptionally well. Uh, but so can I just make one other point? We knew that Saracens, when they came into the division, would boost things. I think I think this year the championship's got more uh, coverage uh, than it had for the last like four or five seasons put together. And I, I think that um, uh, the Cornish Pirates, Doncaster, Ealing, uh, Bedford, Coventry, um, not only have they have they cashed in on the Saracens' effect, but I think they've come to life as a set of clubs. And I think that it is high time that the RFU went back to their shocking decision and re-established the championship because these guys have come through so well after lockdown with no crowds, no money, that their heartbeat is still there, as, as we knew when we went to Cornish Pirates. And I think the division is galvanised partly by Saracens and partly by the fact that these clubs are strong and, and they've got a history and they've got roots they should find ways of boosting the championship more and carrying on and making it uh, bloody good. And uh, as I say, it's got more coverage this season than the previous five seasons put together. Yeah, well, just, let, let me just ask your view on that, Jonesy. We this is this is one of these these subjects that, we, that could normally um, divert us for about twenty five minutes. But uh, I agree with with pretty much everything you said. But I just think the problem with the championship is. It, it, it's it's effectively two divisions in itself. You've got like five professional teams and then a, a, another seven or something. I, I, I looked checked recently. But I think it's five and seven. You, you've got another seven who 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 said, "Listen, we we can't afford to do it that way." You've got so you've got two very different approaches, and they should really move apart in that respect. If no one can help fund the whole thing, that is a problem. I see what you're getting at, but I I, I still very. Uh, def- definitively think that if you if you if you did um, fund it properly or re- retain some of the funding, if you did a better TV deal, no one's ever bothered with a TV deal for it. it, it you're just making it clubs more attractive, and the more attractive they are, the more likelihood they are to get local sponsors, maybe even national sponsors. So. At the moment, there are there, there are clubs that are amateurish as well as amateur towards the bottom, but the whole club and the whole division rises if if it continues in, uh, on the same rate. And it is myopic of the RFU not to realise it. So there will be casualties. You're dead right. Some teams don't want to go up, but they, they can still be uh, a gate taking uh, community club uh, in the championship. And Jonesy, if I can just have a quick chirp, France. Look at that. They've got um, Throw de Deux, which is falling, which falls under the LNR, who run the top 14. The second division in France has got a, uh, uh, a TV deal. It means that the gap between the top league and the second league is not a particularly wide one. It means there is genuine relegation and promotion. Um, I know life is never quite as simple as that because the economy in France, certainly where rugby is concerned, is different to ours. But, I mean, they've got it right there, haven't they? Totally. And LNR, I just got so much admiration for them and the way they do things. And and uh, basically, you've got the LNR who uh, are dominating the scene and given the whole two divisions and maybe even the third division proper um, town-based club rugby. And you've got premiership rugby who couldn't run a in a brewery. Right, uh, boys, let's um, move on and talk about uh, the Lions. So, uh... I don't know, some, some people, when they listen to this podcast, if they listen to it from Tuesday afternoon, will 
probably know the outcome to this uh, conversation. But uh, the Lions are due. This this is Monday morning as we speak. The Lions are due to announce tomorrow who their coaching panel is. Now, uh, our, our favourite uh, Alex Lowe on um, Friday night, Saturday morning's newspapers broke the news that uh, that uh, Warren Gatlin's uh, three of his top coaching choices had all withdrawn late from the coaching panel. So there's no Andy Farrell, no Steve Borthwick and no Graham Roundtree, um, who were all fixtures from the previous uh, Lions tour. So uh, a unit that, that was proven and worked well together. Gatlin's had to um, do some pretty quick work to 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 uh to replace them jonesy yeah, how um how serious a, a problem do you think this is for for the team uh, yes it is because um the reason why that party has been together so long on so many lines to as long as we well know is that it is a totally different challenge it's a, almost an instant pop-up coaching challenge with the lions because of the scandalously little preparation time they get so you need people who have who are used to cutting the same corners and uh first of all i'm very very rather suspicious that all three uh, departed almost simultaneously uh, and it worries me that um, um, Gregor Townsend is obviously an excellent coach he'll be fine but it worries me that there's a lot there was a lot of experience there and a lot of experience at the shortcuts of a Lions tour I think it was a it's a been depressing weekend for the Lions and for the South Africans because the Rainbow Cup has been canned and it, it's a poor day for the Lions coaches it's very poor that Warren's had to rush out suddenly and and you know make a few phone calls just to get his squad together. I can understand that Andy Farrell withdrew late because he was waiting to see if there was an Ireland tour or not, and I and I respect that his uh, priority was to go with Ireland, so that's why he couldn't go. I get also why Graham Rantry's not um, not travelling because he has been in Ireland away from his family for an entire year and. Um, uh, and he thought they were going to be able to travel on the tour with him as well. So um, uh, I, I, I get that as well. I can't quite work out why Steve Borthwick would have pulled out because he he's known the the dates and the details for for a long time. The, the fact is that Steve is absolutely committed to Leicester. I mean, you know what he's like. He's obsessive about everything. But you know, just talking to him after the game, you know, he wouldn't talk about the Lions because he just always said, that "I'm prepared to talk." all year about Leicester and that's it he's Mr Leicester now and you know it's a massive loss to the to the Lions as as, as Ben Youngs was saying the week before you know this guy is is considered by the players to be the best forwards coach in the world and you know, as Steve mentioned you know, you're losing coaches who understand how to short circuit that that building a Lions squad and that's my real concern for this now going forward is okay you've got Neil Jenkins in and you, you've got Gatland as well but you know you, you're missing the guys who Gats was able to to basically not have to say a lot of what needs to be said at the start of a Lions tour. Now he's got to go through it all with new people. And okay, Greg has been there as a player, but it's not like being part of that uh, coaching unit that was so tight uh, for the last couple, couple of tours. And I'm really concerned about this because, you know, the whole Lions question has been up in the air for so many months. And now you have the rug pulled from underneath Gatlin in terms of coaching, you know, and then you've got the possibility, and I'm sure Martin will talk about this, is about the joys of possibly spending seven or eight weeks in the same hotel room in Johannesburg. Now, that really does make you want a tour, doesn't it? I mean, that's absolutely the point, Chris. I think that they've been reading your stories, Slotty. And the prospect of being stuck in the middle of a Joburg-Pretoria winter, which is not 
the most hospitable part of the world if you are a visitor against the prospect of, it of at least spending three weeks down there in Constantia on the wine farm and looking at the mountain, it suddenly is no longer quite the appealing prospect that maybe it was at the start of the year. Well, well spoken by a man who's, who's done his time down there. So, Martin, you, you, you had a nice pad in Constantia, did you? Um, just down the road, actually. I couldn't quite afford Constantia. I stayed in a suburb called Takai. It's just on the other side of Hut Constantia and uh, Klein Constantia and all those lovely wine farms. Mm. Jones, are you, are, you, are you worried about how this Lions tour is going to be? Because it's not going to be a tour, is it? It's going to be, as Martin said, a long, a long stint in a hotel somewhere. I can't get a definitive view on the actual COVID situation there. Martin would know that better than me, Owen. But I have to say now, I'm very, very concerned indeed. First of all, that um, you know these, coach, these coaches have withdrawn. Secondly, it could be... Uh, a, a kind of grim experience in one of the world's greatest touring venues. But but also you can you know the, 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 some coaches have dropped out. I think what we never we we're now beginning to think is all our teams we pick. Uh, oh, this is my thirty-five lines. This is my line squad. Do we know that all the players would definitely go as well? Some of them have got families. Some of them maybe um, uh, have underlying issues, uh, health issues. You know, may, maybe Gatlin's going to have to sort of scramble around to get 30-odd players to go there. Mm. And and uh, look, without raking over old coals, it would always remain the disgrace of 170 years' history of the Lions that this tour was not put back <laughs> one year. I've never heard a single reason why it would not have been. And it's the old uh, uh, death riders in the unions and, and premiership rugby uh, who stopped it, as well as possibly the the other uh, down under union. So it's a shocker. I get very, I'm very anxious about it, and uh, mm -hmm. the idea that the players of both sides should just be stuck in a hotel with hardly po poking their noses out the door is very depressing. There's a Jonesy. There's, I mean, the stories that have been coming out over the course of the last 48 hours about uh, the Rainbow Cup. I mean, that's if it doesn't happen, it's not happening because we don't want them over here because of the risk that might run. However, the irony is, as things stand, we're quite happy to send our lot over there. And in South Africa at the moment, there is no meaningful vaccination programme at all. Mm -hmm. They've secured uh, the vaccinations, but they have no infrastructure in which to distribute them. And there are challenges there because many people who will be listening to this associate South Africa with big cities and uh, Cape Town and the mountain. But the reality is that South Africa is parts of the Eastern Cape. It's a Northwest province. It is places that have no real infrastructure at all. So they're facing massive challenges. You make a point about the, the European nations don't, don't particularly fancy big numbers of South African sportsmen coming over here right now, Martin. But no, no one's actually been able to say for sure whether... Lions from Britain and, and, and Ireland, when they return from their Lions trip in, in August, will, will they be asked to quarantine? There's no, there's no definitive on that at all either. It goes back to what you're saying, Steve, is will players be jumping at the invitation to tour with the Lions this year? Yeah, I mean, that will become, I guess, the debate. Once we've got them over there at the moment, we're debating, should we be going over there? And then once that started, and maybe we have got them in South Africa, then we'll start writing the stories and discussing, well, should we be letting them back and straight onto our street? There is the also other aspect of this, is that this, the key South African players already in Europe, who then would have to go back and come back again. I mean, putting them in a very difficult situation. 
I mean, let alone this Rainbow Cup doesn't take place. But yeah, fine. When are these guys going to go back for any squad sessions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Springboks coming off a standing start against the Lions. I mean, this is the ultimate standing start, isn't it? They haven't played Test Rugby since the World Cup final. We do have to keep on reminding ourselves. Mm. But mind you, nor are the Lions. In fact, they haven't played Test Rugby for, for quite a lot longer. So um, poor old them, huh? <laughs> Uh, sound, sound uh, from the uh, the man in charge of the pod. Sound our reasoning. Thank you so much, Slotty. <laughs> I'm always upbeat about the Lions because they are essentially an upbeat thing, but they've been savaged by useless administration. Their own is is hopeless. Anyone heard anything from Jason Leonard about it? He's meant to be the chairman, for God's sake. I'm afraid that I'm very, very depressed, and I I would now I would now bet on the fact that the tour does not go ahead. Serious? You don't think it will happen? I think the creeping tentacles of COVID are gradually suffocating it. On that cheerful note, let's talk about another competition that's um, that's in trouble. The Women's Six Nations uh, hasn't been a great success because there's two tiers of of, uh, of quality in there. We don't know if it's going to be completed now for COVID reasons. The, the, the COVID thing aside, which which is this awful, unfortunate thing that's disrupted uh, a year or more, as as we all know. Uh, but but the 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 way that the teams have appeared, Steve, you 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 watch all this closely, seems to have polarised the good teams and uh, and the less well prepared teams even more. Absolutely, and it's uh, look, there, there, there is an upside in the sense that they finally got realised that it doesn't have to be in parallel with the men's event going, and they 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 don't want it to be. They don't really need to play. At, at, at midnight at Twickenham in, in, on a freezing night in front of 400 people. Uh, they can take it away and, and, and get people like Exeter, Doncaster, maybe uh, Saracens, um, and, and then teams in Ireland and Scotland, get them to stage it and really put on a, a feast of rugby uh, in front of a good crowd. That's all good. And uh, I think when England finally play France, if they do in this tournament, will also be good. But the awful gut-wrenching sight of these massive victories, uh, massive defeats, is just not doing anyone any good. The good news from the weekend is that Ireland, um, well, good news for Ireland, looked to be a very fine side and looked like they could at least give France and uh, England a decent game. Ireland beat Wales by a lot of points on the weekend. But uh, as for Wales, possibly Scotland and and, uh, and um, Italy, uh, really poor. I mean, I think people were thinking that the Ireland-Wales game on the weekend would be a real tight one, especially with the Welsh clubs or Welsh players all playing in the Premier 15s, but it was devastatingly disappointing. People said, oh, this is a discrimination. The Welsh rugby have never helped the girls. I'm sorry, that excuse can't be used every time. Uh, it's got a certain validity, but these girls all play pro or semi-pro rugby in England and they should have done better. So I've got a huge question mark there over the preparation of the Welsh squad, the coaching, and uh, there is something seriously missing there. Chris, if you were um, Bill Beaumont and the, 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 the top man in world rugby, what would you be doing about, uh, about the women's Six Nations or the women's game to try and make it work better? It's really sad to see this, this split now between the sort of the, you know, the France England teams and now hopefully signs of Ireland again looking good and this massive gap then to to the next level because there's just not number of teams out there in world rugby to to keep it going in terms of yeah you know, really good 
strong fixtures against teams of, of, of equal caliber. And uh, you're just you know, waiting and waiting for this England-France game to take place. And, and hopefully, COVID allowing, it will do. We will then get a true understanding of where England are because they look, they look pretty fantastic, don't they? Well, also, they've got tremendous strength and depth that they've been working on. But you really want them playing against teams that push them. They're 60 point wins. I mean, you know, they're selling the women's game because it's getting better, it's getting more uh, exposure, uh, playing standards are improving. But when those who have a passing interest in the sport see that sort of scoreline, it's not helping anybody. And then you, you throw in now that this possibility that the French might not be able to go to, to Dublin because of the hotel visa and all that sort of stuff. And then it just it dismantles a lot of the good work that's been going on to build up this thing's nation. If I was Bill Beaumont, then I'd be looking at why the other teams outside of Ireland, France and England are performing so badly because, you know, they've got the money to help out, haven't they? So let's get the programmes in. Yeah, I, I just wonder if if they're hung up on the whole Six Nations because that's that's the way it has been in the men's game. Why does it have to be six? Because they don't have six nations of that quality unless they bring in New Zealand and, and, and bring them into the tournament every year or something or, or, or make it two divisions of four or, or something. Like that. I just I, I think as it is at the moment, it's just not fit for purpose and it doesn't help anyone. It, the, the teams that are being smashed, that it doesn't help them in the slightest. I think you're right. And I would definitely look now. Let's hope that Ireland are going to be competitive. If they are, uh, I would say from now on, England, France and Ireland play each other home and away give you the same number of games and then there's a second division which the rest of the teams plus the likes of Spain and Holland have a second division and there's a one person promoted into the top uh, top four every year one person relegated and I think you'll get less massive uh, crushing defeats so England uh, France and Ireland play each other twice in the top division the rest play each other uh, underneath and uh, that's how they do it yeah, I think it'd be good for development as well. There we are, Martin. You see, come on the ruck and we've just solved the problems of women's rugby in the world. Yeah, I just think we've got to maintain faith and I think that the rate of improvement is huge. And I think, again, to draw another parallel with the weekend, and when we saw a woman ride the winner of uh, the Grand National this weekend, I think we can probably all remember the pieces that we saw on, on television X number of years ago that if we look back were rather patronising. Was it Charlotte Brew? who's the first woman to ride in the national. Look how quickly moved there. I think we're rather closer to where we uh, are this weekend in um, in national hunt racing than the Charlotte Brew days. But I just think it goes to show if you keep on boosting, promoting the women's game, it, it will come. And we're getting there obviously much faster for some countries than others. Oh, I love that. And he said it in English as well. Right. Okay, so we sign off in traditional manner uh, with our God or Goddess of the Week. Chris, would you like to start us off? I'm going to go for a, a deceased God of the Week because it was just really sad news yesterday to hear about Massimo Catito. I mean, yeah, I remember playing in Harlequins. What a lovely bloke. 70 caps, six years with Scotland. He was just a really nice, really nice rugby character and reminds us of, of, of great days of, of Italian players and personalities. And I just want to put his name up there. I just, uh, it's a really sad moment. He's a, a victim of COVID complications and uh, yeah, a tale of our, our current game, unfortunately. Well said, well said. Martin? Well, I'm going to name someone who I don't think we're likely to name again this season, but he looks... He wears glasses that look as if they're being sort of carved out of the inside of a fishbowl. He's got double glazing 
slapped across his minces, frequently forgets to put his teeth in, or at least that is how it appears. But Christophe Urios, to me, is the highest achieving France coach for the last decade. I mean, 10 years ago, he took Oyana up from Prodider and took them into Europe in top flight European competition. He then moved to Castro, who in danger of relegation, won them a top 14 title. And now he's taken Bordeaux Begler to a Champions Cup semi. There is not a French coach, I believe, in the last 10, 15 years who's achieved that with the raw materials he was given. Very good. Jonesy? Yeah, well, I've got one. Uh, I've got a very unlikely figure. I mean, Martins was a bit unlike. My, my unlikely god of the week is six feet 11. He weighs about six stone. He's gangling. He has a replica Lawrence Delalio haircut. And he emerged from obscurity, which is quite difficult when he's six foot 11, to play for Leinster in the second row at Exeter. Devon Toner doesn't look like an athlete, really. He doesn't look like anything rather than a big tall bloke with no hair. But I've always rated the bloke as a guaranteed source of lineup ball because when you're that big and that light, it's very difficult to get anyone up so quickly and so high. And I would take him on the Lions tour to challenge uh, Lou Diaga and um, Eben Edstebeth. And he was superb on the weekend, although he is. So Devon Toner, the unlikely god of the week. Very good, boys. I was going to uh, try and come up with an explanation for why Ronan O'Gara is the god of the week, but I'm not even going to bother. I'm, I'm going with Chris on uh, Massimo Katita. So um, thanks for that one, Chris. Chris, great to have you back on again. Uh, Martin, always great to have you on again. And um, more of the, those French history lessons, please. Maybe you could do us come on and just have a little section every week with some French that we don't understand. Jonesy, lovely to see you. Uh, everyone out there, thank you again for listening. Funny enough, we'll be back next week. Please carry on downloading and recommending and um, see you then. iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.